give your Bibles this morning, I want to open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look there today. Last week we started this series called The Only Way to Live. And it's based on the greatest sermon ever preached in history. The Sermon on the Mount. And up to this point, Jesus has kind of been general in his comments. But, but here he's going to get very specific. And he's going to address six critical areas where what goes on in the inside of a person is far more important than what occurs on the outside of the person. And he's going to deal with topics like murder and adultery and divorce and honesty and revenge and loving your enemies. And what he says not only astounded the common people that heard him of the day, but it also deeply angered the Pharisees. Because you see, the Pharisees believed that righteousness begins and ends on the outside of the person. But Jesus is going to teach that righteousness really begins on the inside. Six times Jesus either quotes from the law or from the interpretation of the law and given by the Pharisees and the rabbis of that day. And after quoting the law, he gives them his interpretation of what the law really means. Five times he says, you've heard, and then follows it up by saying, but I say. With the subject of divorce, he says, it was said, but then he adds, but I say. And now some people believe Jesus is contradicting the teachings of Moses and contradicting Old Testament law, but the contrast is not between the Old Testament law and what Jesus teaches us. The contrast is between the way the law has been mishandled and misinterpreted by legalistic Pharisees and what the law really meant. In fact, when Jesus is quoting strictly from the Old Testament, he uses the words, it is written. But in these verses, he introduces what the Pharisees taught, and he says, it was said. In other words, Jesus isn't denying what the law taught. He's deepening what the law taught. And the first subject he deals with is murder. As you know, the first crime committed in the Bible was murder. Now, that wasn't the first sin, but it was the first social result of man's personal sin. And we still reap the bitter fruit of that sin today. Estimates are there are 25,000 known murders a year in the United States alone. That's an average of 70 a day. And that doesn't include suicides and abortion. We've now become the murder capital of the Western world. And yet, if you ask the average American, have you ever murdered anyone? They would emphatically say no. If I, if I took a poll here this morning and asked how many people have, have murdered anyone, raise your hand. My guess is no hands would go up. But here's the shocker. Jesus would say, mm, not so fast. And he's going to show us that murder is not just the act. It's also an attitude. In fact, before you commit murder with your hands, you become a murderer in your heart. There was a pastor talking to a, a couple one time, and they were having some marriage problems. And he looked at the wife and he said, have you ever thought about divorce? And she said, no, but I've thought about murder on a number of occasions. See, it's possible to have that seed of murder in your heart. Whether or not you actually sow that seed and let it bear fruit. I mean, a perfect illustration really is the prodigal son. 
You remember the prodigal son, right? He goes to his father and he says, Dad, I want my share of the inheritance and I want it now. See, in biblical days, the only way you get a share of the inheritance was when the father died. So really what the son was saying was, Father, I wish you were dead. And if you've ever been angry at a person, angry enough to to even have that fleeting thought of, I wish you were dead, you're guilty of murder. But Jesus goes beyond that and shows how ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill anger that, that we see even in our homes, it's like murder. And it's a great lesson on how should we view anger and how should we have victory over it. And it all begins here by seriously perceiving the anger before you. And look with me, Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, people back then, just like people today, thought murder was simply the lawful, the unlawful physical taking of a human life. But Jesus is going to teach us that, that you can be a murderer in your heart without ever committing it with your hands. There's more than just taking someone's life. Uh, For example, suppose you want to kill someone and you even have the murder all planned out and and then at the last moment you change your mind. Jesus says you're guilty of murder. Just because you didn't follow through because you couldn't pull the trigger or, or something stopped you doesn't mitigate the fact you had the attitude of a murderer. Or suppose someone decides they want to take your life and at the last minute... It's not they're afraid of having your blood on their hands or it's not because of a guilty conscience, but but maybe they're just afraid of getting caught and so they decide not to do it. Jesus says they're still guilty of murder. But he goes even deeper than that and he says, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. See, this is the anger that's seen when you're the gritting of the teeth and the clenching of the jaw and the flashing of the eyes and someone that makes you so angry, like the old saying goes, you just want to spit. But you really don't do anything. Nobody sees it. Well, except God. He sees the boiling, burning rage inside of you no one else sees. Jesus says you have the spirit of a murderer. There was a little girl who came forward during a revival service and told the pastor she needed to be saved. And after church, the mother went up to the daughter and asked, why did you go forward? She said, mother, I need to be saved. The mother said, honey, you're a good girl. You read the Bible, you go to church, you never give dad and I any trouble. How can you say you need to be saved? You're too good to need to be saved. And the little girl looked at her mother and she said, mom, You don't know my heart. Well, God knows. And He sees those times when you're angry, when you're boiling on the inside, even though you cover it up pretty well on the outside. He goes on to say, and He says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. 
That, that word raka, it's a word that really doesn't have an equivalent English translation. But the best scholars say is it literally means to call someone a valueless person. And Jesus here is referring to the times when you get angry, so angry you say something you wish you hadn't said. You, you allow that poisonous venom to come out of your mouth before you can plug up the jar. Or you let profanity spew from your mouth and you curse someone before you even realize what you've done. There was a, a young father who came home from work and he saw his wife crying. He said, oh honey, what's wrong? She said, oh, I've had the most terrible day. The baby cut his first tooth and he took his first step. And the father said, well, well honey, that's wonderful news. And she said, yes, but then he fell down and he cut his lip on his tooth and he said his first word. <laughs> Have you ever been that angry? Jesus said, you, you for an instant had the attitude of a murderer. He says, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of the fires of hell. That, that, the word for fool, the Greek word is moros. Uh, it comes from our word moron. Used to refer to people who are basically morally wasted people. In other, in other words, when you get to this point and you lose your temper and you're screaming insults at someone like this and you've determined they are nothing but trash. That's the type of anger when we get to the point where we just lose it and we yell and we scream and we rant and we rave at the top of our lungs and, and we don't care who we hurt. We don't care who we insult. We're just angry. And we're yelling. There was a, a University of Alabama football player. He was on spring break in Florida and he went to one of these get acquainted parties. And he saw this beautiful woman there and she was from an Ivy League school and he walked up to her and he said, where do y'all go to school? She turned and she said, Yale. So he took a deep breath and he shouted, where do y'all go to school? Yale, get it? <laughs> Yale. See, when you get to that type of anger where you're yelling and screaming and losing control to, to the point of degrading someone's human worth, you've reached the guilt stage of hellfire. And now Jesus isn't saying you're going to hell. He says you have enough guilt to send you to hell. You have the guilt of a murderer. See, what he's trying to get us to understand is really how destructive murder is. You know, one of the phenomenon we see here in the U.S. is, is road rage. We've all seen it, right? Experienced it. On the Golden State Freeway in California, Delfina Morales and her daughter were irritated by some driver. Other motorists saw them tailgating this van, making angry gestures at the driver. When the van got off the freeway, Miss Morales followed closely. Then she got into position to spin her tires and splash the van with mud. She quickly spun around, flinging mud, and drove up the ramp from which both vehicles had just exited. In her state of anger, she lost her bearings, treated an off-ramp like an on-ramp, and drove straight into oncoming freeway traffic. And she and her daughter were killed instantly when they crashed into a truck. See, anger like that not, not only causes you to become a murderer in your heart, it can become the murderer of yourself. 
1 John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When you get to that type of anger, you've gone too far. It's nothing less than a verbal stabbing from the heart, and it causes you to murder the other person with sharp, knife-like insults. So perceive that anger before you. Then spiritually, put the anger behind you. Continue with me. Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. See, Jesus now moves into a situation that honestly occurs far too often, both both in the church and outside the church. I mean, I would be pretty shocked if there was somebody listening to this message right now that either doesn't have something against someone or, or maybe doesn't realize someone has something against you. But either way, Jesus said reconciliation is important. So important you need to drop what you're doing in church, go out and find the person who needs church and get right with them before you worship God. This is one of the few times in Scripture where we're told there's something more important than worship. One of those things is making sure you are right with the people you know. 1 Timothy 2.8 says, Therefore I desire that men every men pray everywhere, lifting up holding hands without wrath and doubting. That, that word wrath? You can't worship God with that kind of anger in your heart. You can't be right vertically until you're right horizontally. And so if you're not right with someone on earth, you cannot be right with God in heaven. I mean, imagine this scenario. You, you get up Sunday morning, you take your shower, put on your Sunday best, come to church, park the car, come inside, sit down, and, and you begin to focus on God. You, you sing the songs, you begin to pray, you listen to the Word of God, and, and at some point in the service, something flashes across your mind. It's, it's not just a nameless, faceless person, but it's, it's a face of someone you know. Someone you've offended. Or maybe someone who's offended you. And the Lord brings that person to your attention. He puts that face up in your mind and you can't forget it. And, and all of a sudden, worship goes out the door. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. There was one preacher I read about. He had a very strict rule. He said, my wife and I, we have a rule. We don't fight on Saturday nights. And you know why? Because I have to preach on Sunday morning. <laughs> See, the point is you can sit in church and you can have your Bible open and you can nod your heads and say amen and still not worship God if you're not right with a brother or sister. See, incidentally, Jesus is, is speaking here of someone who has something against you. In other words, you may not have a problem with anybody, but if you know that somebody has a problem with you, something against you, then you need to try and reconcile with that person. But let me add these words. If it's possible. Paul says in Romans, if possible, live peaceably with all men. In other words, when you make that good faith effort to reconcile 
and, and, and the person you're trying to reconcile with refuses, your conscience is clear. But until that happens, you need to do everything you can to be right with others so you can be right with God. And finally, sincerely place anger beyond you. Let, let's finish this section. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. See, Jesus' point here is pretty simple. Make things right with everyone you know before it's too late. Now Jesus here, he's referring to someone who's been accused of owing another person money. See, in the Bible, if you were convicted for not paying someone what you owed them, you went to prison. Here in America, during the early days, we had what was known as debtor's prison. But back then, if you went to prison, it became a catch-22. Catch you see, there was no time limit on your punishment. And the only way you get out is to pay off the debt. But the problem is, while you're in prison, you can't work. You can't leave work. You, you can't go home and do your job and earn money. And if you can't earn money, you can't pay the debt. And if you can't pay the debt, you can't leave prison. And, and so, in fact, if you went to prison for owing someone money, it was a life sentence. So that's why Jesus said, hey, settle quickly, quietly, before you get to court. Because once you get there, it's too late. See, Roman law said uh, a plaintiff could bring an accused person before the judge. But the law also said the two could settle anything on the way. You could be on the steps of the courthouse, and if you choose to settle your case just between the two of you, it'd be settled. But the moment you walk into the courtroom and stand before the judge, it was out of your hands, and your fate would be in the hands of the judge. See, here's what he's saying. It would be very sad, to say the least, to have bitterness in your heart towards another person or for someone to be bitter towards you. I always want to be right with God. And to be right with God, I have to make every effort to be right with my fellow man. And really, there's a greater truth here you better settle your sin case out of court with God before you die. See, it's why I don't fear meeting God when I die because I know when I gave my heart to Christ and I surrendered my life to Him in baptism, I settled my case out of court. And the amazing thing Jesus teaches here is it's incredible how giving forgiveness to someone or seeking forgiveness from someone really unloads the gun in the other person's hand. It changes things. Uh, when painter Leonardo da Vinci was painting The Last Supper, he had this intense, bitter argument with a fellow painter. And he was trying to think of a way he could get him back. And he came up with this plan that as he was painting the face of his enemy as the face of Judas Iscariot, that way it would be captured for all time in a memorable way. And that's what he did. 
As people came and looked at his work while it was in progress, they immediately knew who Judas was. And Da Vinci said he got joy out of portraying this man as Judas. But as he continued his work on the painting, he came to the face he had saved for the end, that of Jesus. And he drew a mental blank. Kind of like what writers have of writer's block. And he couldn't paint a thing. Finally, God convicted him, showed him the trouble was he had painted the face of his enemy as the face of Judas. He realized his hatred and bitterness was keeping him from being able to paint the face of Christ. So he went back to the image of Judas and painted a a nebulous face and then he went to his enemy and, and he asked him forgiveness. And they reconciled. And then he went back and could clearly paint the face of Christ finishing one of the world's greatest portraits. You know, in a sense, we've all been guilty of murder because we're all guilty of murdering Christ. It's our sin that that put Him on the cross. Am I right? But if Jesus can forgive us, if he can make things right with us, even though we crucified him, how much more through his power, how much more because of his blood, can we do the same for others? So let me ask you as we close this morning, who do you need to seek forgiveness from? Who do you need to offer forgiveness to? Who do you need to restore a relationship with? Go. Today. Do that. And if at all possible, live at peace with all men. Or maybe this morning, that begins by by seeking God's forgiveness. By surrendering your life to Him. If that's your desire this morning, I invite you to come. 